another exciting episode of the Bible Geek with your distinctly unexciting host, Robert M. Price, the geek himself. Uh, haven't been with you for a little while because I've been working like heck on the, the book, the, the um, what is it, Holy Fable, the Bible undistorted by faith. I'm getting, eh, not real close, but uh, sort of close to the end. I've done things out of the canonical order in the New Testament. Um, I've done, I'm pretty much done with the Pauline epistles, the uh, pastoral epistles, the general epistles, Hebrews, and I'm, uh, well, maybe two-thirds through the book of Revelation. Uh, I'm, uh, then I'm going to do the Gospels and Acts, and uh, yeah, that's quite a lot, quite a tall order, but I'm uh, feeling pretty good about getting it done before too long. But I am uh, cheating other things, and I'm afraid the, the Bible geek has been one of them. I'm sorry about that, but here we go. Let's have some fun with, uh, with the old rain barrel. Here's a question from Abdel Daoud, first prophet of the Aten. There is a construction in Matthew which never fails to strike me as strange whenever I hear or read it. It may be my OCD asserting itself, or it may be a poetic emphasis, but even before I began to understand some of Matthew's polemics, I thought it was odd. Matthew five seventeen through 19 New American Standard Bible. Do not think I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say unto you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. There is only one least. There may be multiple lessers, and my assumption is that this should be understood as shall be among the least in the kingdom of heaven, but the phrase shall be called least has always implied to me that Matthew is condemning an individual rather than a school of thought. Is that a possibility, or is this simply an elegant way of saying one of the least? It seems significant that those who do teach the law are not the greatest, but merely great, that is, among the greatest. Now I understand that Matthew is targeting Paul's now that I understand that Matthew is targeting Paul's teaching is it possible that his construction is aimed at Paul himself and that Matthew is naming Paul as the least in the kingdom of heaven may the black sun forever curse you with wisdom Abdel Daoud first prophet of the Aten uh, let's see I think it, it probably does just mean 
as a group, those who teach the doctrine that is implied in verse 17, uh, do not, I got the wrong voice here, do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. Uh, uh, Now, who would be saying that, that the mission of Jesus, I came to do so-and-so, was to abolish the law and the prophets? Uh, Well, uh, it, uh, that implies this is a rival Christian doctrine, right? But don't you believe it? That's the point of that. Uh, So some are saying that, and uh, it says whoever teaches that, uh, whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments and so on. Um, that I think is is singular, right? And and uh, therefore it says such a one is uh, the the least in the kingdom of heaven. So I think if you want the bottom shelf, folks, this is the way to get it. Uh, but uh, you never know. I mean, it, it, you could be right just as easily because uh, later on in the parable of the wheat and the tares, uh, s- s- the enemy has sown the tares. That's almost got to be Paul. Uh, so it could be that here. However, this gets into a real uh, uh, briar patch because you have to wonder if the uh, keynote statement there of the Sermon on the Mount is not aimed at Marcionite Christians. And of course, Paul would be implicated. But uh, who in the early church advocated abolishing uh, not just the law, now that's Paul, but the law and the prophets? You don't have that in the Pauline epistles as we now read them anyway, right? To say the law and the prophets is to say some would say Jesus came to abolish the scriptures. Now, would that be even Paul? I mean, he loves quoting from the the prophets and so forth. Uh, So I I suspect we're dealing with with an addition by Polycarp, the ecclesiastical redactor, uh, enlisting the original anti-Paulinism elsewhere evident in Matthew uh, to serve as a polemic against his um, Polycarp's hated foe, Marcion. So it may be Marcion that's intended there. But this is all maybes, right? There's no way to dogmatize on this stuff. Yeah, good, good, uh, sharp eye there. Uh, Chuck Quino in Fairbanks, Alaska. He says, um, future presidential advisor on biblical criticism. (laughs) I only wish. Um, I read in a somewhat unreliable source, Robert Heinlein's Job, A Comedy of Justice, never read it, I'm sorry to say, that the original meaning of Exodus 22:18, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live, was something like poisoner rather than witch. Comparing other translations online, female sorcerer seems to be prevalent. Well, what is this, uh, politically correct pressure from Wicca? Uh, anyway, uh, Modern concepts of witchcraft seem to mix vaguely pagan traditions with notes of Satanism. Devil worship seems to be an anachronistic idea to the author of Exodus, but what about the pagan aspect? Is 2218 aimed at indigenous religions of the Northern Kingdom? Uh, Or do modern readers miss the original meaning completely? Can you weigh in on the tradition of witchcraft and modern corruptions of ancient paganism? Well, check for one. Check for one thing. uh, The point in uh, in 
Exodus, I think, is spirit mediums. And uh, the Witch of Endor is a later example, right? What is it that the the, the woman is doing that uh, has resulted in her profession being outlawed in the days of Saul? And, is, and so that when he seeks her out, he has to go in disguise, as he doesn't want to frighten her, though she does know who she he is through some sort of supernatural insight. Uh, and, well, he is seeking out uh, uh, like a spirit medium, like uh, the seance medium, kind of. I mean, that goes way, way back. Uh, It doesn't say she's a pagan uh, or a member of some Canaanite religion, but you have to keep it. So she she could have considered herself an Israelite. She might have been an Israelite. In Isaiah, it says, should a people consult the dead on behalf of the living instead of consulting their God? Well, that's exactly, I think, the idea of the ban on witches, uh, mediums. Uh, and uh, it, it does it, now. The, the Isaiah sort of implies that this is a general practice: necromancy, right? Uh, fortune telling or telling the future by means of the dead. That's what the witch of Endor does, right? She summons up the shade of Samuel from Sheol, and um, not permitting them to live is uh, a way of cornering the market on divination. And that's the that's what the Exodus passage is doing. That's what the Isaiah passage is doing, and that's what the First Samuel passage presupposes. You, this is the same instinct, by the way, that led people to frame a canon of scripture with strict boundaries. We want to delimit the possible sources of revelation. Uh, if you have uh, these Gnostic Gospels in your canon of Scripture, then you're going to find sources for a lot of uh, ideas considered crazy by so-called orthodoxy, so we don't want those available. Let's burn them. Same thing here. Let's outlaw uh, this rival channel of uh, divination. Now, there were, there were uh, uh, legitimate... Yahwist, if you want to call it that, uh, channels of divination. There was the ephod, which was some kind of a priestly uh, breastplate or, or perhaps an image. It's a little difficult to, to tell what is implied, but it's some sort of oracular device. And uh, then there were the urim and thummim, a couple of uh, stones, apparently black on one side, white on the other or one black and one white. I got a modern mock-up of those right over there next to my miniature um, Book of Mormon plates. Uh, uh, And uh, let's see, you could ask a question that way. Uh, and uh, the the priest or uh, who was the oracle? I mean, kahin uh, in Arabic and kohen in Hebrew mean either priest. That's why all Jews with the name Cohen supposedly go back to Levitical priestly houses, Kohen. Uh, and, uh, but it also means soothsayer, as in the Quran. No, your companion is not mad, nor is this the utterance of an accursed devil. He's not a Kahin, in other words, who gets revelations from the jinn, the desert spirits. 
uh, and uh, the same word, it's cognate, means either priest or oracle monger because they were the same thing at one point. And uh, so they were the legitimate diviners or fortune tellers. Like when they go to Samuel, uh, the Nabi, to uh, the seer, to ask uh, where the heck Saul's father's donkeys have run off to. Uh, kind of reminds me of just this morning when I opened the door to a pair of Jehovah's Witnesses and uh, Pixie, my cat, ran out, which is always a nuisance because she climbs the tree and then scratches on my daughter's window to get back in. and so. But miracles, uh, maybe Jehovah's Witnessism is true because uh, I saw a miracle. Pixie came right back in. Uh, astonishing. Anyway, um, how the heck did I get off on that? Uh, well, uh, the, uh, the, the priests were, uh, were soothsayers, and yeah, the lost donkeys, the lost cat, that was it. Uh, and uh, so that, I think, is what is being condemned. There's something to what Heinlein is saying. I don't know that um, the word in Hebrew does imply poisoner, but in the New Testament, especially, well, really just the book of Revelation, I guess, when it condemns sorcery or witchcraft, it's the word pharmakeia, uh, which can mean apothecary in the Romeo and Juliet sense, uh, a druggist who also deals in poison, which is why uh, in my um, uh, pre-Nicene New Testament, human Bible New Testament, when it says that the sorcerers are banned uh, from the New Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I take it to mean uh, drug dealers, and uh, that's um, so. He's got a point, but I I don't really see that implied in Exodus. Uh, modern concepts of witchcraft. This gets into another hornet's nest because uh, it it looks like that the medieval witches were just. Um, wise women they uh they knew they were like shamans right they knew medicines and herbs natural medicines and all of that uh and uh, perhaps they um they uh cast uh, curses on people i mean that's part of popular religion everywhere it wouldn't have to have uh, been part of either satan worship and I mean that's but but the Mal the uh, Malleus Maleficarum the witch's hammer the handbook of the uh, inquisitors that builds up a lot of probably spurious lore about witchcraft by uh, systematizing confessions tortured out of so-called witches. Uh, you were uh, having sex with the devil, weren't you? What was it like? Uh, well, anything you say, just take off the thumb screws, right? So they probably asked him leading questions. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure, that's right, anything you say. Uh, and uh, so that's notoriously unreliable. There have been Satan worshippers, there still are, and I don't mean the, uh, the uh, religious humanist type Satanists, uh, the uh, Church of Satan, the... Uh, the Temple of Set, that's really a whole different thing. Uh, but there have been people who actually believed in a metaphysically real Satan and worshipped him. Um, uh, but uh, I, I don't know how far that goes back. It's possible there were witches' sabbats where they really did worship Satan. I, it's really difficult to say because the, the evidence has been so screwed up. Um, but 
I think it is equally tenuous to go the Margaret Murray route, witchcraft in uh, Western Europe, uh, where she says that they did worship a horned figure, but it was the horned god. Uh, it was uh, an ancient Pan-like deity. Uh, it could be, but I think she's just sort of doing an almost euhemeristic take on medieval inquisition belief about witches. Okay, they were worshipping a guy with a prominent penis and a couple of horns, but it wasn't Satan. Uh, it was uh, the horned god of nature. It was Pan or whatever. I can't think of the name they usually use. Serunos or something? I don't know. Um, but I think, you know, again, that's possible, but I don't see any particular reason to think so. Uh, there, I mean, just like in ancient Israel, uh, people didn't, uh, especially in the, on the grassroots revel, level, have some sort of uh, strict systematic theology. Just like in, in Buddhism, uh, there are books written about popular Buddhism where the pe people still worship ancestors, spirits, and Hindu gods along with the the Buddha, and so that uh, it's it's almost a kind of an an anachronism to retroject these abstractions, these textbook types into the the history of it. So um, I don't know if we know enough about ancient witchcraft to know if anybody has reconstructed it. Uh, accurately today, whatever it was, uh, the Wicca people, it's clear they have kind of winged it, uh, taken their stand on Margaret Murray's theories, which again are not ridiculous, but I think quite uh, dubious. And uh, then they, they start making stuff up, basically, in a very creative way. And these things are traditions in the sense that they're handing them on. But I think uh, modern witchcraft really is a, a modern attempt to uh, speculate on what magic was and to, to um, reproduce it or update it. Yeah, so I guess that's too much about that. Thanks, Chuck. Martin Gatt says, Since you agree with Richard Carrier's theory regarding the heavenly Jesus, which the early Christians, in quotes, because, you know, sort of a proto-Christian idea, might originally have come up with, could you provide evidence from the few Pauline letters which may refer to the celestial Jesus? Yeah, there's a, a couple of passages that are very suggestive of this. Um... Uh, let's see, 1 Corinthians uh, has this fascinating uh, statement. Uh, let's see, I'm uh, 2.6. Among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. These all become or if they're not already, technical Gnostic terms, uh, the, the mature, the teleoi, the perfect, uh, wisdom, Sophia, uh, the, the rulers, the archons of this age, okay, who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, sounds kind of Gnostic, uh, which God decreed before the 
ages for our glorification. None of the rulers, archons, of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, doxa, a big uh, mystery religion term for the transfiguration of the redeemed. But as it is written, and we don't really know where he's quoting this from, it looks a little like something in Isaiah, but not really, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him, dot, 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 God, and a quote, God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the the, uh, bathoi, the deep things, the depths of God. For what person knows a man's thoughts except the spirit of the man which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is from God, that we might understand the gifts bestowed on us by God. And we impart this in words not taught... What am I doing? Not reading Mrs. Paul Lind. Boy, too long. We impart this in words not taught by you and wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who possess the Spirit. Then it goes on more in this Gnostic direction. Now, who was it uh, who, uh, uh, who did in Jesus, who crucified the Lord of glory? The archons of this age. Now, I grant the rulers of this age or this world could be understood as Caiaphas, Pilate, Herod, and so on. Um, And that wouldn't be much of a stretch because, of course, they believed that there were angelic-slash-demonic powers behind the thrones of earthly rulers, right? the principalities and powers. So um, if it's assumed that it was Pilate, Herod, etc., then uh, the powers of this age, the rulers of this age, could have put them up to it, right? Okay, that, that does make sense, but it's intriguing that it is not put that way here. Uh, the first time you hear any mention of Pilate is in, I think, the very late First Pete, uh, First Timothy, uh, and uh, so you got to wonder: Do you have any right to harmonize this epistle with the Gospels? People have done that for a long time on many points and assumed that Paul knew pretty much everything that was in the Gospels, but there is such an absence, such a crashing silence about all Gospel materials in these letters that uh, I don't think you can assume that. In fact, I have to wonder if a passage like this got reinterpreted in the process of historicizing Jesus. The archons of the saints, oh, well, uh, you mean Pilate, etc. So uh, if it's not them, in what sense, how did the archons of this age crucify Jesus? Well, as my late uh, friend Acharya S. D.M. Murdoch used to point out, uh, the ancient astronomers saw the, uh, what is it, the crossing of the equinox, and the, I can never keep the stuff straight, and the, um, the uh, ecliptic as a cross in heaven. It sure wouldn't be unlikely if that's what they had in mind. In fact, I'm just uh, drawing upon uh, uh, Bruce Molina's fascinating book, 
on the genre and message of Revelation, where he shows that almost the whole thing is based on ancient astrology. It's astounding. So that the earthly events predicted in the book are uh, earthly counterparts to the, uh, the, the motions of stars and constellations in the heavens. Fascinating. And uh, so as above, so below. And uh, so uh, it, it, now you could say that there was this crucifixion in heaven that was mirrored uh, on a literal cross of wood on earth. But again, what does the passage say? You can't just assume that here this writer believed that there was literally a crucifixion on earth. Might have been, but just because the other sounds uh, odd, because we've never heard that, that, that it's uh, fanciful or improbable. Now, here's another one in uh, the letter to the Colossians, heavily Gnostic. Um, if I got this right, yeah, let's see. Um, 2, 8 and following. See to it that no one makes a prey of you by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness of life in him who is the head of all rule and authority." In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. And you were buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, having canceled the bond which stood against us with its legal demands, there's the Torah, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now that's fascinating. It's like the titulus, right? The, the, the placard nailed to the cross saying this guy was a thief, this guy was a brigand, this guy claimed to be king of the Jews. What's, what's on the cross? <laughs> the Torah's regulations. Uh, not exactly like the Gospels there. Uh, he disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in him, Christ or it, uh, the cross. Uh, what is going on there? He disarmed the principalities and powers on the cross. Uh, what sort of a historical scenario is this? Uh, in fact, this is just redolent with several Gnostic terms, all authority and power and rule and all that stuff. The, uh, did the principalities and powers crucify Christ? Well, kind of sounds like it. Now, again, they might have been the, the ones wielding the unwitting tools of earthly rulers, but it doesn't say that. Right? So... Um, these are some of the the things that uh, the mythicist reading of the epistles say that that uh, lead some of us to think that uh, that uh, the uh, that uh, the writer didn't believe in any historical Jesus. There's another one in Revelation which says that his uh, that the Lamb shed his blood uh, at the foundation of the world. Well, that, boy, I tell you, that sounds more and more like Gaiamard in Zoroastrian myth or, uh, or uh, Purusha in the Rig Veda, who sacrifices himself in order to create the world 
from that depends and descends uh, the Gnostic view that the the material universe came to life and into motion once the archons of this age captured and destroyed the primal man of light uh, and used his divine essence, his sparks or photons of divinity, as I like to say, uh, to... Uh, give life to this world uh, and uh, I think this has been historicized in the uh, historical crucifixion of Christ I mean a story of such uh, not that it necessarily happened so uh, there there are passages in and out of the canon that could easily be read this way now again I'm the first to say who knows what these guys intended right but when you find passages that don't seem to make a lot of sense in terms of the conventional assumptions, unless you start twisting them uh, to make them fit, well, once you notice you're doing that, you better say, hold on, maybe, my, maybe there's more to this text than I have been taught. So, I can't get rid of the sinus problem. So, thanks, Martin. I hope that's helpful. You can wake up now. Uh, Richard uh, Dickton, I guess that's pronounced. Um, Acts tells us that Paul was a Pharisee and that before his conversion he hunted down and arrested Christians. Can you tell me what type of Christians they were? For example, were they docetists or Gnostics or another type? Well, uh, with uh, Ernst Hankin and various others, I think that is, as with most of the Book of Acts, fictional uh, there's big problems with that. Um, one of the biggies being that there is no way uh, anybody in the Sanhedrin could have given a delegate powers to go kidnap, arrest, torture people in Syria. I th there's not a chance. They had no such jurisdiction. Uh, and uh, so it, it's impossible on the face of it um, I, I have the theory, I'm sure others have come up with it before, that uh, originally the notion of Paul persecuting Christians of any kind was um, a, a, an unwitting, I guess, a distortion of, an, of uh, the original understanding of Ebionites and Jewish Christians who believed Paul was an apostate from Judaism and trying to destroy it, much the same way Orthodox views, <laughs> Orthodox Jews <laughs> feel about uh, Reformed Jews, much less Christians, uh, and uh, that uh, they they viewed themselves as the real Christians, and uh, they viewed Paul as some kind of an apostate or a fake. Uh, and uh, the way Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio are saying Donald Trump is a fake Republican, right? It's, it's always this. The, the communists used to do this, right? The Soviets said the Chinese were revisionists, and then the, the Maoists said the same thing about the Stalinists. I mean, you're not the real thing we are, right? So the Ebionites are saying that uh, Paul is opposing real Christians like us, now, all that denoted was he's preaching a different gospel, and it's a false teaching. Uh, and so he is pursuing and persecuting the truth, the gospel. 
I think that was later misunderstood when those battles were largely passed. People read that stuff to say, you mean Paul was not a Christian and was persecuting Christianity per se? Well, then he must have gotten converted and switched sides because they, they didn't understand the, uh, the nuances of the original debate. Well, so I think the whole thing represents a distortion. But Luke, who is on the other side of that distortion, he's inherited that version of it, he does pretty much specify who he means to depict Paul before his conversion, persecuting, and that would be Hellenistic Christians like the Seven in Jerusalem. Uh, Stephen, uh, Nicanor, uh, Nicolaus, Philip, uh, and the others, right? Uh, These guys believed, apparently, from what uh, Acts says, that the temple was unnecessary and and so forth, and that... uh, that it was okay to preach to Gentiles as well as Jews. This is what, even in Luke's version, gets Paul upset along with the Sanhedrin, of whom he is some sort of flunky or depicted that way in uh, in Acts. And uh, it's it's they don't. And it says a persecution broke out against everybody but the apostles. Now that's interesting, as Bauer and Kuhlmann and others have said, that has to mean that it was just the Hellenistic Christians, not the ones who were still uh, Pharisaic-type Jews who were persecuted. And uh, yeah, I think that is correct. He's, uh, he's, and, and who are Paul's enemies in Antioch? It's the synagogue of the freedmen and so on. So it's Hellenistic Jews. So that's what Luke intends, though again, I, I think it is not historical. Boy, I'm going to have fun doing uh, the Acts chapter in uh, Holy Fable. By the way, was Paul a Pharisee? I tend to think that um, that's part of the legend Chaim uh, Maccabee in books like um, The Myth Maker and Paul and Hellenism, very much worth reading. Uh, he says that uh, Acts is basically historical and that Paul really did write all the epistles attributed to him, but that Paul was not a Pharisee, he's just lying about it. Uh, I think that that's almost the old rationalism. You want to keep the integrity of as much of the evidence as you can, but change the explanation of it. I think it's just clear that uh, the notion of Paul as a Pharisee, or even an ex-Pharisee, represents the Catholicizing second century tendency that Bauer pointed out. Acts makes Paul a partisan and and an observer of the law, the very opposite impression we get from the letters. And I think that it's trying to make Paul more Jewish uh, because Luke's faction of Christianity has embraced uh, the the Old Testament, at least de jour. Whether they're actually keeping it or not, no, I guess not. But I think that's really what's going on there. The, The historical Paul, whoever he was, and as you probably know, I think it was Simon Magus, was no Pharisee and had never been one. Okay, let's see. Um, David S. in Seattle. 
I'm currently reading against Celsus, or Celsus if you prefer, C-E-L-S-U-S, really I think it's Celsus, and I came across a passage I was hoping you could give your thoughts on. In chapter 63 of book 2, Celsus brings the following charge against the gospel narrative. And by the way, if you don't know, if you're not familiar with this very interesting ancient book by Origen, written, I guess, about 75 years after the Middle Platonist Celsus wrote The True Word, criticizing Christianity. So Origen um, wrote a refutation decades later. Okay, uh, and, and he preserves big chunks of Celsus's original so that you can reconstruct at least a kind of Reader's Digest version of Celsus's work. And that's, that's what... Uh, what uh, is referred to here, the um, Celsus passages referred, uh, preserved in origin. Okay, uh, Celsus brings the following charge against the gospel narrative. If Jesus desired to show that his power was really divine, he ought to have appeared to those who had ill-treated him and to him who had condemned him and to all men universally. In response, Origen agrees that Jesus was not seen after his resurrection in a public manner. He then quotes Paul in Corinthians, saying, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that he was seen of Cephas, and then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto the present time, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then all the apostles, and last of all, you've seen of me also as of one born out of time. Maybe I can do a better Paul Lind when I get rid of this cold. So far, so good. Here's the part that interested me. Next, Origen comments on this passage in Corinthians, saying, I'm of the opinion now that the state... Now, this is... Um, this is Origen, not Celsus, right? Saying, I am of the opinion now that the statements in this passage contain some great and wonderful mysteries, which are beyond the grasp, not merely of the great multitude of ordinary believers, but even of those who are far advanced in Christian knowledge, and that in them the reason would be explained why he did not show himself after his resurrection from the dead in the same manner as before that event. Quote, what are these mysteries? Origen goes into almost docetic notions in his attempted ex expansion on this passage, even saying that the necessity of the kiss of Judas proved Jesus did not always have the same appearance. Could this passage be mysterious, quote unquote, because of the post resurrection? I'm sorry, because the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus were, early on, never thought to be anthropomorphic versions of him, like they're thought to be in, by modern Christians. It seems to me Origen would have no reason to consider such a cut-and-dry testimony of appearances as mysteries, unless there was something about them that did not match up with our traditional idea of an appearance. Ooh, well, that's a good question. You know, that Origen says that... Uh, Jesus did appear differently to different... The risen Jesus appeared differently to different people depending on their state of spiritual perception and acuity. And uh, this is a way... I think he, he seems to be trying to explain 
the uh, three or so, ref- three or four references where in the resurrection narratives it says they didn't recognize him. Now, that is really a fascinating element that occurs again and again. In John 21, uh, they, um, Jesus is on shore close enough to shout and be heard, and uh, suddenly the beloved disciple says, It is the Lord. Well, they didn't recognize him at first. Uh, he appears to two disciples heading back to Emmaus, and they're walking miles with a guy and don't know who he is, though they're disciples. Right? And uh, in John 20, the resurrected Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene, who doesn't know it's Jesus. She thinks it's the gardener. Uh, in the um, Mark and Appendix, he appeared in another form. Now, that's interesting. Now, that's not original text, but we're just talking about you know early resurrection traditions. That one doesn't say they were kept from recognizing him, but that uh, they couldn't because he didn't look the same. What is going on? Um, well, there are some really fascinating and plausible theories. Uh, the mistaken identity theory uh, and uh, that that some some uh, followers of Jesus, uh, Essenes or whatever, dressed in white like James the Just and the Essenes and so on, appeared to the disciples to tell them that uh, Jesus uh, had uh, risen because, or they thought he had or whatever. And these guys later thought, wait a minute, could that have been Jesus? Which is sort of a wish fulfillment, but it's plausible psychologically. And uh, uh, let's see, uh, there's a similar theory, a little better, that says what's really going on there is these stories are about the itinerant preachers of the gospel, the itinerant radicals, the wandering charismatics, etc., of whom Jesus says, he who hears you hears me. He who receives or welcomes you welcomes me. And think of the sheep and the goats. You didn't lift a finger to help me. What, what do you mean, Lord? We never saw you in the gutter and uh, and starving and sick. Sure you did. Uh, when you when you saw the least of these my brethren in such straits, that was me. Well, maybe that's what the resurrection narratives mean, that they're about people understanding, because they accept the gospel message, that the preachers of the gospel are really Jesus in the form of his followers. That makes a lot of sense to me. But, let's see, I also kind of like James M. Robinson's theory that uh, and this i i kind of think is more what origin had in mind that if you deem something like the description of the appearance of jesus to paul on the damascus road as at least preserving what some uh how some imagined a resurrection appearance it was just blinding light and a voice and uh, there's some uh, evidence for that in the appearance of the angel of Jesus in the beginning of the book of Revelation and in Gnostic sources. And uh, Robinson thinks, now we're not talking about John A.T. Robinson, a great New Testament scholar as well, but, but James M. Robinson, a disciple of Bultmann, 
he says that he thinks they didn't recognize him uh, is, is a vestige of this earlier stage where uh, it was just a blinding light almost like Moses in the burning bush and that though uh, the gospel stories tend to concretize these appearances and, and make them at least analogous to pre-crucifixion appearances of Jesus you know showing him his wound, showing them his wounds and all that that the non initial non-recognition is a holdover from that uh, earlier stage that makes an awful lot of sense and uh, origin i think is probably referring to that only he is willing to take them all at face value and he's saying well whatever paul saw it wasn't a guy standing there with uh, wounds in his hands it was a blast of light uh, and uh, these others again didn't recognize him immediately uh, that implies he appeared in different forms to people who had uh, different lenses on, which is pretty fascinating. Now, this this is, as you say, kind of docetic because uh, in the preaching of John, uh, a part of the Acts of John, uh, John, son of Zebedee, is pictured as reminiscing about how it was to be with Jesus. And he says the first time he and his brother uh, met Jesus when he called them away from their nets to be disciples, he and his brother James uh, were were trading descriptions of this guy on the shore calling to them. And uh, John says to James, who is this uh, young kid calling us? And James says, well, I don't see anybody like that. I see uh, an old man. Uh, and uh, then uh, they rub their eyes and John says, well, he's gone now, but I do see a kind of a middle-aged, paunchy, balding guy and so on. And eventually they realize it's Jesus seen in different forms. Uh, the Acts of Peter has a similar thing where a bunch of the consecrated widows pray and see visions of Jesus, and there are loads of them, and he looks different in form to all of them. So what, what uh, Origen, who was sort of half a Gnostic, uh, like his mentor Clement of Alexandria, uh, Origen is sort of just saying that, uh, what do they call it, uh, polymorphism of the Savior, which is something you see among the Greek gods too, um, that was, an, that was the, the case after the resurrection because what does 1 Corinthians 15 say? The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. You wouldn't expect him to be the same. And so, but some did see him in human form right well, hence different levels of spiritual apprehension. So I think that's what's going on there. He may not mean more than that, though that's that's enough. <laughs> Pretty fascinating. This is one reason we don't speak of Saint Origen. That's, uh, that's uh, kind of a... I mean, that's not my opinion, right? But uh, I, I think he belongs with the big names, but that's he was sort of considered a heretic in a number of ways. Well, I better get going. Got a visitor coming in. Got to um, get this thing all uh, sealed up and sent off. But I hope to uh, speak to you again a little sooner than I uh, than the gap last time. Um, uh, the old geek and his uh, family are uh, typically um, in the red. If you can help us. Uh, 
I sure would appreciate your contribution to this ministry. But if not, what the heck, keep listening. I will see you soon, and though I've got a bunch of them, keep sending in those great questions. So see you next time on the next exciting episode of The Bible Geek. The Bible Geek was recorded by Robert M. Price and produced by John Felix and Sergeant Yovanovitch. Theme song by John Morris. Visit us at robertmprice.mindvendor.com for more info on Robert's projects, purchase Bible Geek merchandise, and click the ever-important Donate button. Send your questions to criticus at aol.com and be sure to rate and review The Bible Geek on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Bible Geek. I'm Torn Atkinson. <laughs>